let's bow for a word of prayer. <clears throat> we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the, the person of Jesus Christ who, because of his tremendous work upon the cross of Calvary, bought our salvation. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have made this provision for our desperate need. We thank you that because of that we can have fellowship with you. But it is our desire, Lord, that we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want, Lord, to know you better. And we want to be able to better worship you. We know that you're worthy of our worship. We know that that there is intrinsic worth in your precious name, in your character. But, oh, Father, so often we're distracted in this world. And so keep our focus on you, we pray. And, Lord, we just pray that tonight might help in causing us to get an eternal perspective rather than being bogged down with merely earthly things. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. In this series, we're talking about changing life's patterns. The basic premise that we have for the series is that, unfortunately, when we became a new creation in Christ Jesus, we, we have developed from our old life habits, habits that in many ways are related to our old sin nature, related to the flesh, related even to the, the habits of the body. Most Christians, when they, when they have accepted Christ as Savior, they, they don't intentionally rebel against God. Uh, once in a while you find some who do. Once in a while, I suppose, we all do. But by and large, we, we want our life to be focused and centered in the, in the one who died for us, the one who saved us. Uh, we want to live for him. And uh, though we're sometimes slow learners, we, we have that kind of a desire in our heart. And yet, we discover that there's a lot of baggage from the old life that is sort of drug into the new life. A lot of old habits that, that we, just, we don't really think about. We don't, uh, we don't just do them because we're mad at God or because we're determined to, go, to have our own way. But um, we do them because we are accustomed to doing them. I have a friend uh, who a number of years ago um, quit smoking. And uh, he told me 10 years later that every once in a while under certain conditions he would reach in his pocket and think, I haven't smoked a cigarette for 10 years and I'm still reaching in that pocket for that cigarette. And that's, I think, typical of the thing we're talking about here. There's a, an almost automatic response to certain things. Unfortunately, these same things become really a drag on your Christian life. And um, things like pride as an example and presumption, some of those things we've talked about in these days past. And last week, we, we started talking about what is really a big one in our lives, and that is polytheism. Uh, there were many gods in our old life. I think we stated last week that uh, most uh, people, in America anyway, uh, would not want to think of themselves as polytheists, as, even as unbelievers. Uh, they would probably believe there was one God, uh, though they weren't convinced that going to Jesus Christ uh, to meet that God was the solution and answer. But if you ask them, how many gods are there? They would say, well, there's only one God, if they believed in God at all. And yet most unbelievers, in fact all unbelievers really, are polytheists, because uh, when it comes to the matter of of worshiping God, exclusive of anything else, it's obvious that there, uh, there are very few or none of the unbelievers that would be doing that. And so when we accept Christ as Savior, we again would profess to be a monotheist, believe in one living and true God revealed in Jesus Christ. We would not have any allegiance to any other God, certainly. We don't have idol shelves in our home, and we don't bow down to shrines. We worship and serve the living God. We're like the Thessalonian Christians who turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And it's our purpose to, to obey the first commandment and not have anything before the Lord our God. But unfortunately, 
those uh, gods of the world, God, the goddess of science, the god of self, the, the goddess of physical beauty, the various other gods, the goddess of science, uh, those kinds of gods are, are very easily uh, readapted even into the Christian lifestyle. And so we talked a little bit about the first commandment and we, we also looked at First Samuel chapter 15 briefly and saw that, that a point of rebellion on the part of Saul in disobeying what God had clearly told him to do was indeed equivalent of idolatry. Any insubordination to God, any uh, resistance of his will, any point of disobedience is really because you're a polytheist. Now perhaps of all of the subtle gods that we face, the one that is the most prevalent, particularly in our society, but I think in most societies, is the god of materialism. The New Testament had a word for it. The word was mammon. Two should be two M's. The god of mammon. The god of material things. And Christ deals with this false god in a text that is in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. I want you to look with me, beginning at verse 19. And it's a lengthy passage, so I think that what we'll do is read it uh, section by section and then refer to that a bit and then go on to the next uh, section. The first section begins in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in or literally dig in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Application. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, of course, verse 24 is the key verse. It points both before and after and points out that the subject of this text of Scripture is polytheism. Now, you might not see that on the surface because, again, we don't like to think of the God of materialism as being a genuine God, a genuine false God. But it really is. First of all, in verses 19 through 21, what we're dealing with is an attitude towards security. I, I think that perhaps it would be good for us to just mull that over in our mind for a moment. Where is your security? Where do you place your confidence? Indeed, if there was a great crisis in your family, in your home. To what would you turn to meet that crisis? Let's say it's a material crisis. Let's say suddenly you receive a bill that is a lot more money than you ever dreamed. You realize that you just don't have enough to cover it, at least with your ready cash. What's the first thing you think of? Probably most of you think of that investment that you have or perhaps uh, uh, some life insurance that has some dividends or perhaps that piece of property you could sell because to meet most crises in life for an American at least the answer is money, isn't it? And if we have the money, we usually don't think too much about the crisis. It's unfortunate in a way because it's God's intention that in any crisis of life the first thought that you have is of Him. That you realize that everything you have belongs to Him. 
And that the solution to the problem is not in your physical or financial resources. The solution to your problem is in the living God. Is it any wonder that God occasionally has to strip us down to bankruptcy so that we learn to trust him? You know, it's a shame, isn't it? Because if, you, if, you have, if you're stripped down to your last dime, then you're forced to trust the Lord. There's no other resource. And the, the amazing thing is that God is sufficient. But will you understand, he was sufficient before. And there's the tragedy. Because of, of polytheism, we do not learn that God is always sufficient. And I think that We've, we've done a disservice in these days, and I'm not sure that Valley Church can do anything much about it because the system is bigger than we are. But it's a tragedy that, for instance, it used to be that when a missionary went out to the mission field, uh, he went out, like Abraham, not knowing where he was going. And not only that, never knew where his supply would come from. Uh, it was always hand to mouth. God's hand to your mouth. You know, God never let him down. I, I can't remember ever reading of a Hudson Taylor or a C.T. Studd or a David Livingston uh, dying of starvation. In fact, the book of Proverbs says he will not allow the soul of the righteous to famish. We have God's promise on that. The problem often is just that we don't trust God enough. So today, you know, we've got all kinds of insurance plans and, and uh, this and that and the other thing, you know. It's an amazing thing. But people today think more in terms of security. You know that most mission boards, the very first thing they're faced with, with a group of recruits, is they want to know what's your health policy, what's your, what's your, uh, your retirement plan, uh, what kind of benefits do you have? That's the question that comes from, the, from the, the new breed, the adventurous young person of today. His curiosity used to be, how easily can I die on the field? How many martyrs are going to go out this year because they served Christ? They were, they were willing to take risks. Today it's considered a risk if you go to the field with only a small health plan or a small life insurance policy. See what I mean? Now as I say, it's bigger than we are. We're not, we only have a certain amount of influence on mission boards. But the pioneer spirit of missions is, is just about lost because of a materialistic attitude. And uh, I think that we need to, at least among our people, develop an attitude that is different. Even if the mission board requires that we have a health policy and that we have an insurance policy and this and that and the other thing, when we go out to the field we should go hoping for nothing. I know a missionary with a pioneer spirit who was down in Brazil living in the city. And when he found that he was being sent to the jungle, he discovered he could eat the native fare very well. And uh, there was no uh, high real estate costs as there had been in the city. But the support level for that particular mission was the same regardless of uh, where, what they were paying out for rent. He received a salary which in the city was barely enough to get by, but in the jungle where you couldn't spend any money anyway, it was more than enough. And so rather than tucking it away, something that was deplorable to him, he began supporting a missionary in Japan. And this man is still on the field today, he and his family, and they have the full support of a missionary in Japan with their missionary stipend. Now, if I told you how much it was, and I'm not sure at this point, I know what it was a few years ago, but it's all relative, isn't it? Nevertheless, here's a missionary who would be giving the equivalent of 90% of his salary away and living on 10%. Try that. 
Try that for a week. Try that for a month. Well, you say, my circumstances are such that I can do that. I agree, but just think about it for a moment. Where really is your security? I probably going to end up having to spend another week on this subject because I'm getting carried away, but I'm on my own schedule this time, so I can do it. My father stepped out hoping for nothing when I was a very small boy. He linked up with Charles Fuller of the Old Fashioned Revival Hour and became a part of the, the Fuller Evangelistic Foundation. And uh, there was no salary. There was no income of any kind. And not only that, even though he was linked to Charles Fuller's radio ministry, he, was not, he wasn't given leads by that at all. He had to make his own leads. But God had clearly led. It was right at the end of World War II. We had been waiting for the voice of God to make clear what he wanted us to do for six months. Six months with no salary, no income. God provided. But it also reduced my parents to just the clothes on their back and their few furnishings, all of which they sold with the exception of two mattresses when they moved from Yakima and went clear to Southern California and there made arrangements with Charles Fuller and he assigned Father the territory in the Northwest, which is the place we just had come from, which seemed a little bit silly, but it did give us a trip to California on gas ration stamps and all the rest. Nevertheless, we settled in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right in the panhandle of, of the state of Idaho, and that was sort of centrally located, and Dad began to try to make contacts. For all of those growing up years of my life, we never, from one week to the next, knew where our next meal was going to come from. But there was, it was always there. I look back on that now, and especially in relationship to the the new trends of today and I just think how how silly they must have looked in the eyes of so many people to leave up leave a, a secure situation and dad would travel in some of those little farming towns in North and South Dakota I remember one year they had a year about like they've had this year it was a year of drought and dad went for three weeks of meetings to a little community they asked him to come and uh, he went there at his own expense. And when he got there, the, at the end of three weeks of meetings, you've got to remember, five kids at home, three weeks of meetings, and the pastor came up to Dad with tears in his eyes. And he said, Pastor Steele, this has been a bad year for the people. He says, you know, this has been a wonderful week. God is blessed richly. And he says, I honestly believe that people have extended themselves in giving but he said, all that we have to give you is $20. Well, $20 in those days was more than it is now, but it still wasn't much. And uh, Dad took it very gladly. He didn't even make expenses on that meeting. And he phoned home and he told us real excitedly, God has supplied $20. You know, we learn more about God and his faithfulness in those years than many people ever learn in a lifetime. I think it's tragic. Our children never get a chance to see God do that kind of thing. Some of you have heard me tell the story of, of when I, I really was getting to the age, you know, where I was beginning to think about girls. And, and I had an old ratty pair of shoes with, that really were beat up. You know how boys will do, particularly in an area where there was a lot of snow and mud and that sort of thing a part of the year anyway and my shoes were frankly ruined and uh, uh, yet uh, you know they were they were pretty durable shoes and they'd held up fairly well and my mom told me said son if you really want new shoes pray that God will send the money I think shoes were about five dollars in those days shows you how old I am and uh, but nevertheless uh, I prayed and a man who had never ever even sent a Christmas card to my parents. But a man that God had touched through my dad's ministry years before sent a letter, and in the letter was a $5 bill. And he said, you know, God has supplied for me in a special way, and he's laid you on my heart. 
use this for anything you wish. I'll never forget when mom pulled that $5 bill and sent cash through the mail. Pulled that $5 bill out of that envelope and I thought, my shoes. And mom says, that's right. See how God supplies? And just then there was a strange noise. Have you ever heard it kind of boom, boom, boom? You know, when a soul is torn away from a shoe? It was my brother Dwight. He was walking into the house and the, actually the sole had been ripped off of the shoe and it was making that funny noise and he walked in and I, I thought it was wings. There goes my five dollars. All right? I'll never forget. Mom looked at me and she said, Son, you prayed for this five dollars and the five dollars is yours. But when, you, when God gives you something, he also gives you responsibility. And you have to decide who needs the shoes worse, you or Dwight. It was no contest. But I had to make the decision. I had a chance to be selfish. But I've been taught not to be. And I said, I guess Dwight gets it. And then mom said this, never forget it. She says, you know, son, if God supplied once, he can supply again. You prayed for $5 and God supplied just in time for Dwight. I'm sure that he can supply just in time for you. So I began to pray. And guess what? God supplied another $5. It was another man that had never sent my folks anything. But he just thought of dad and thought, he's doing a fine ministry, I'd like to send him something. And he sent me my shoes in an envelope. $5 bill. Dwight had new shoes, I had new shoes. I can remember mom telling me, you go to the store, she gave me 22 cents, the price of a loaf of bread. She said, son, please don't be careless. This is the last money we have in the house. If you lose even one penny of it, we won't be able to buy a loaf of bread and won't be able to have lunch tomorrow. Won't be able to have toast in the morning because we're down to the bare minimum. You know, I held tightly onto that money and I got to the store. I was never so relieved. I felt as though I'd been entrusted with the money at Fort Knox, you know. And I put that 22 cents on the counter and I picked up the loaf of bread and I came home. When that last heel was gone, there was another loaf. We learned to live by faith. Our security was the Lord, not in material things. In those days, I can remember people saying, what are you going to do if somebody gets sick? Five kids? You know, your percentages are pretty good. Somebody's going to eventually get sick, right? Somebody's going to break an arm, break a leg. No insurance of any kind. No life insurance on dad. No health insurance on anybody. What happens if such a calamity takes place? Well... Our God's big enough for that too, isn't it? I think that there were probably each one of us from time to time had to uh, have things like our tonsils out. But as far as I know in my family, there's never been an appendectomy. Mom and dad were never sick during that period of time. Nobody ever went to the hospital. Even when we had our tonsils out, it generally was done in the morning in the hospital and then we left after the, the recovery room and recovered at home. But nevertheless, there was not a penny in any, anywhere for any of us. If we had broken an arm or a leg, I don't know where the money would have come from. It would have come from God, no doubt. But no one in our family in our growing up years ever broke a bone. And if you knew what we did, you would wonder how we ever escaped that. No one ever suffered injury. We didn't even have very many close calls. About the worst thing I can ever remember was falling down a flight of stairs and skinning my leg. We played the same games that everybody else plays and the percentage is pretty good that we should have gotten hurt. Somebody. See? But God took care of us. But then the third thing that I just want to mention is that people said to my dad, 
What are you going to do for retirement? What are you going to do in your old age? I mean, you just can't live in this world unless something's set aside for retirement. He didn't have anything for retirement. Nothing at all. And you know, I mentioned that six months that we were in Yakima. During that six months, Dad just ministered anybody he could. Led people to the Lord. That was his lifestyle. Touched the lives of a good many people. And then, you know, 25 some odd years go by. And Dad's health is a little tenuous because of the years and years of traveling on buses and traveling back and forth and going all over the place. And, and uh, you know, Dad, his frail body, uh, though he'd never had any serious illness, it just wasn't what it used to be. Not only that, he suffered just a slight little stroke that left him just a little bit slower than he was before. And so in the midst of all of this, and just asking, what does God want us to do? One of the men that he, whose life he had touched 25 years before was now the owner of a group of convalescent homes in Yakima. And at the point of time where my folks really needed something that wasn't quite as rigorous, this guy calls up and tells Dad, I want to hire you to be the chaplain, to minister to these people in the convalescent home. And not only that, but I want to, we want to pay you X number of dollars. Dad hadn't had a salary since the years that he was, was uh, back in Everett, Washington during, the, during World War II. So I want you to come. We'll give you the salary. We'll work 40 hours a week. Dad had never worked 40 hours a week in his life. He couldn't believe he would have, he would have uh, leave, leave the job Thursday afternoon and wouldn't have to be back until the service on Sunday morning. And uh, this was something that he'd never ever thought about doing. But his spiritual gift is showing mercy and he loved, he's got one of the best bedside manners you ever saw. If you ever get sick, well, you ought to call him. He's the greatest. But I'll tell you this right now, Dad, Dad was, was given health insurance, life insurance, retirement, all of those things. He never asked for it. God just gave it to him. And mom and dad, dad retired from that job three times. This time's for real. He's really gonna, he really has retired. He's not any longer even going to nursing. What he did was he'd just go down and help 40 hours a week. And uh, they paid him half salary or something, you know. Anyway, but uh, he, he tried to retire a few times and didn't make it. But this time I think he made it. But in their, in their twilight years, if you please, they're living very well. God's still taking care of them. Now, I, I share that. I just share that with my heart because I, I really didn't intend to do it. But you're so nice, I just couldn't help it. But uh, share that little insight. I just, I cannot understand what we could do as a people to begin to get back. I don't care how much money you have. It is not a matter of how much money you have. It's a matter of what your attitude is toward it. Could you? Could you really? Take all that you have and give it to God tomorrow and never look back. If you can't, do you realize the grip that it has on you? That's what I'm trying to say. Where is your security? Now, we'll get to the text finally. Notice what it says. Do not lay, it's a command, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. That's a command. Don't do it. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Now notice, here's the incidental security. It's warning you. Treasure on earth erodes. Do you hear me? Treasure on earth erodes. And there are three things mentioned out of dozens that could have been mentioned. He mentions, first of all, the moth. Remember that the, the garments in the ancient world were much more precious than we consider garments today. Remember that cloth and, you know, silk and cotton and those kinds of things were hard to obtain. There was no cotton gin in those days. Everything was woven by hand. A man who had more than one coat, seldom, uh, or if he had more than one coat, he was usually a very rich person. Seldom 
would there be a person with more than one suit of clothing? And that wouldn't be even as elaborate as anyone is wearing here tonight. It would be a very simple robe. The Lord Jesus Christ had one, uh, one garment, and that was raffled off at the foot of the cross. And that was the common thing in that day. And for a person to have more than one garment was a very unusual thing. Frankly, what they would do is simply strip to a loincloth, wash the garment in the, in the river, and leave it out in the sun to dry. It dries very quickly in that climate, a very arid climate, and they'd put the robe on again. And remember that when the Israelites took the city of Jericho, it makes a point of saying, remember what it was when Achan took the accursed thing? He took some gold and some silver, but he also took two changes of raiment. Why two changes of raiment? That put him on Knob Hill. That put him in the category of the very wealthy and rich. Do you remember what happened when Gehazi betrayed the confidence that Elisha had in him with Naaman? Naaman had tried to get Abraham to take, uh, tried to get Elisha to take the garments and to take the gold and silver that he brought from Syria. And Elisha said, no, I won't receive anything. The healing from leprosy was of grace and solely of grace. That's the implication. And so Gehazi goes running after Naaman and says, oh, my master changed his mind. You remember what he took? He took the wardrobe. Oh, he took some gold and silver. But the emphasis of the text is on the wardrobe. He took some garments. Not just one, but some. And you see, the, the, the wealthy, the rich people of that day were the ones who had more than one garment. Now, with that in mind, just look over at James 5. James chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in, in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And the text goes on and tells us that they had been withholding wages from the workers. They had been oppressing the poor. But notice what the target is here. The gold and the silver and the garments. And so the same thing is true here. Your garments are going to be moth-eaten. Your garments are going to perish. Your garments are not going to, not, not going to be fit for, uh, for use in public any longer. Not only that, not only the moth, but then it says that rust is going to destroy. Now rust, of course, destroys metal. And uh, the passage I just read, you may have picked up on it, speaks of, the, of gold rusting. The Hebrew, or the Greek word that's used here is uh, really a word that speaks of erosion. There will be erosion. Now, I think anybody who's had any metallurgy at all uh, understands that gold doesn't rust. Not only that, gold does not erode with any normal function. They've discovered now a process called electrolysis that... Uh, have been around for quite a while, that can change gold in a remarkable way and thus cause a kind of erosion. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here. It's talking rather about an erosion that we know a lot about. We might call it inflation. And it says your gold is going to be worth less and less. Um, U.S. News and World Report had a little graph a few weeks ago in uh, their publication, and it showed that gold, which hit an all-time high of $850 per ounce, approximately, early in 1980, also hit a low of less than $300 in the mid-1982, mid and at the time that the graph was made up, which was mid-1983, it was about $390, give or take a dime. Now, you think about that for a moment. Supposing you wanted to get on that, on that train, uh, the gold train, about, uh, about the $450 level, all right? 
and then you wanted to hold on to it so that it would go up even higher than the $850, right now you're on pins and needles, right? Because no matter how you look at it, you're, you're staring a loss in the face. And of course the hope and dream is that it's going to go up beyond what you paid for it sometime. But you have no security in that. And if you needed it today, it would do you no good. Now I don't know about you, but I'd far rather bank in heaven where I've got the supplier who has all things in his hand, the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and can supply to me as I need it, and it's even promised to do so. It'd be far better to have that, wouldn't it? Than to have the banker that sells you gold at $450 an ounce, and then you see a net loss over a period of years. You see, there's no security in that. It's rust. Your gold has rusted. It is, it is no longer secure. That's the point of the parable here. And then there's a third way. Thieves break through and steal. They dig through and steal. Now the word here for treasure is the word thesaurus. You ever hear that word? It's the word that is used to speak of a treasure of words. And uh, Roguet uh, put words together in that way. Most of us have seen or used a Roguet thesaurus. But the idea in that day was that of buried treasure. And the idea is that you bury your treasure and you think that's secure because you've buried it in a safe place. But thieves have a way of digging in and stealing. And therefore, no matter what material thing you may have, it could be gone just as quickly as a thief can take something from your home or your car or from your person. And uh, everything you have can be lost in a very, very short time. The thieves break through or dig through and steal. So, as a result of that, it says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When you think in terms of the decay of the garments, and you think in terms of the inflation with the money, and you think in terms of the, the possibility of losing everything through a thief, you have to realize that it just doesn't make a lot of sense to, to put much stock in value and, and feel as though you have much security in material things. Now the second thing is the indestructible treasure, and that's in verse 20. It's almost identical verse, except it's positive, not negative. It tells you what to do rather than what not to do. And it tells you that the things that happen to the other security, the incidental security, can't happen to this. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth destroys, and where thieves do not break in and, or steal. Everything that you send to heaven is perfectly safe. Some of you may have heard Lehman Strauss share how his radio ministry began. Um, he needed several thousand dollars to get going. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000, I think, was the amount that they figured they needed at that time to get going and uh, to get on several stations and so on. A man stepped forward and gave him the $20,000 that he needed to get going. Something we're still praying about in terms of our radio ministry here and uh, trusting the Lord to raise up, even though we don't say a lot about it, raise up funds ultimately when it's his timing to go ahead with radio ministry. But this is the thing that, that happened with him. $20,000 was forthcoming. And uh, the man gave it to him a year later. The man had tremendous financial reverses and lost everything. Stripped naked. And Dr. Strauss had a phone message waiting for him. It was this man who had called him and wanted to see him. And Dr. Strauss, being carnal like all the rest of us on occasion, thought to himself, oh no, he's going to want his money back, <laughs> which he didn't have, obviously. <laughs> and he had, no he had no reason to fear, however, because when he met with the man, here's what the man said. He said, Dr. Strauss, you've probably heard that I've lost my business, and I'm stripped to nothing. He said, Dr. Strauss, he said, one time in my life, I took a portion of the several million dollars that I had and I gave it to you. 
$20,000 to begin your radio ministry. He says, I hear you on the radio every day. I hear your voice. I realize that the only thing that I had in life that I've kept is what I gave away. The only thing I have in life is what I gave away. All the rest is gone. But what I gave away has begun your radio ministry and thousands of people are, are touched. And as a result, I have a part in that. That was the best investment I ever made in my life. How about that, huh? That's laying up treasure in heaven. Moth and rust can't hinder that. Once you give to God, God takes care of the paying of the interest and dividends and all of the rest. God takes care of that and it's out of your hands and into God's hands and where could it be safer than even as we are, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast. So you see, it's good advice, isn't it? A good command from the Savior to be willing to invest in eternal things. Now why though? Why does he want us to invest in this way, in this indestructible treasure? Why does he, instead of burying something in the ground, does he want us to bury it in heaven? Why does he want us to give to God and, and be generous in that way? The reason is because when you develop a mentality like that, then you change God's. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Back to the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, or thou shalt have no other gods before me. Back to the summary of Jesus Christ of the two parts of the Decalogue. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Alright? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Every time you give to God, a little more of your heart goes to God. As you invest in eternal dividends, there's a part of you that transfers from the God of money to the God of, who is the God of gods, the God of the Lord of hosts, the faithful and holy God. And you see, if you can ever make the transfer from seeing all of your material things as merely a stewardship for God, then you see your heart can be wholly given to God. And God will then entrust you with great riches. God will entrust you with things that can be used and invested for his own honor and glory. But you see, the problem is not whether or not you have money. The problem is whether or not money has you. I had a friend that found some skill and being able to discern which stocks were good and which ones were bad and which ones would have a rapid payback and turnaround and which ones wouldn't. He told me, he said, I have taken $20,000. And he said, I have put it into the stock market. Every time I, every time I realize a profit, one-third of that is, will go to the Lord's work. One-third of it I'm going to put aside for reinvestment. And one-third of it I'm going to put aside for my family. I said, sounds fair enough to me. Good idea. So, actually, he had responded to me because I had talked, uh, given a message on the fact that we are not only responsible for what we give to God, but we're responsible for the parable of the pounds, you remember? We're responsible for what we, what we keep as well. Some people say, well, I give my 10% to God, the rest of it's mine. That's not the way it is. God holds you responsible for what you give, whether it's 10% or 20% or 30% or whatever it is. He holds you responsible for that. Then he holds you responsible how you use the rest of it as well. It all belongs to God, doesn't it? He's the owner. But anyway, this fellow decided to do this. His first year in playing the stock market, he invested $80,000 in the Lord's work. Just by investing, selling out at the right time, reinvesting, and so on. And after that first year, he was looking at an $80,000 nest egg to begin the next year and looking, projecting somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000 the following year to go to missions. But guess what? 
the thought occurred to him, I could do much more if I reinvested the Lord's part as well as the investment part and my family's part as well. Maybe I'd be talking about giving a million dollars to God if I were to do that. And so throughout the year, as he made investments and cranked it around, he took everything that he had and put it back in. With the idea in mind of somewhere down the line, reaping all of this and giving this great sum to God. But remember, he had told God that he was going to give a third every time he showed a profit. You may remember they had what they called Black Friday back, you know, what, probably 20 years ago now. I'll never forget, I saw these this place I drove by uh, where it showed the stock market uh, gain or loss and it was always you know seven points ten points eleven points and this particular day it was a terrible amount I don't remember how much it was but boy I blame that fellow for that right to this day I told him you know I said that's your all your fault he couldn't get rid of his paper fast enough he ended up broke why well because it wasn't so much that he had money. He had proved his ability to make money. The problem was the money got him. And what he did was pure greed, pure selfishness. With all of the talk about what he would do. You see, God doesn't give you any credit for what you say you're going to do. He wants to see it done where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the inescapable truth of verse 21. Now, that brings us then to another attitude. Not only the attitude toward security, which is these first three verses, but now the attitude toward singularity. Or you could say an attitude toward selfishness. Now you may not see that immediately. You read these verses and you probably say, what does that have to do with the worship of material things? A clear or a single eye as opposed to a bad eye. What does it have to do with what we're talking about here? And that's a legitimate question. What Christ is teaching here is a contrast between a selfish lifestyle and a generous one, right? It's not immediately apparent, but the, the word is very clear. The Greek word is the word H-A-P-L-O-U-S, haplous. Haplous is used in the Septuagint. Remember the Septuagint? You see it written like that, 70. L-X-X is 70. Uh, the reason they call it the Septuagint is that it's, they took the Masoretic text. Seventy scholars took the Masoretic text, and according to legend, in 70 days they translated all of the Old Testament into the Greek language and uh, there was considered to be something of a miracle not only to do it in that time allotment but there were a number of other fables that are connected to that idea that's the, the uh, Jewish interpretation of how the Septuagint came about it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures you learn a lot about the Hebrew thinking of that day by taking the Septuagint and comparing it with the Hebrew text and with the New Testament Greek text. You'll learn a lot about both languages as a result of that. So you always look into the Septuagint concordance in order to find out how words that are used in the New Testament were used in the Old Testament. Most theological uh, dictionaries, thorough theological dictionaries deal with, the, with both languages in that way. Now the word haplus is used in Proverbs 11.25 where it says the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. The generous man, or the King James translates it, the liberal soul shall be made fat. The liberal soul shall be made fat. Alright? It's speaking of generosity. Another form of the same word is found in several passages of the New Testament. And I want you to turn to these, if you will, because I, you might want to mark them in your Bibles. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. He who exhorts in his exhortation, talking about spiritual gifts here, he who gives, person that has the gift of giving, 
He who gives, how is he to give? He is to give with liberality. The King James says simplicity, doesn't it? Have we got a King James? Simplicity? Okay. He does it with simplicity, but the word is the word haplus. He does it with generosity. There's a quality about haplus that you can't avoid. It's this. It not only is generous, but there is no thought of return. You don't give to get. You don't grab onto the promises that say that when you, when you water, you'll be watered. Even though that's a legitimate thing to understand that that's what God can and will do, it's not as though you have that as a motivation. Because the word haplous means there's no thought of return. You are generous, but with no thought of return. That's the idea of singleness. You do it without thought, without ever thinking that you might get it back in some way. The next one is over in 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 3. But I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The devotion is the thing that's being talked about here. Not money, but devotion of your heart. That, that you give your heart to Him without any expectation of return. You, you give just because he is, the, he is the one who is worthy. It's like Abraham offering Isaac on the altar. You give Him your all, you see. And in your, all of your devotion. All of your heart. And so the problem is that Paul is saying that he's afraid that Satan is going to deceive you so that your heart become a divided heart and that rather than having a heart that is wholly and completely devoted to God that you have a heart that is torn. Do you know, it's an interesting thing. You know the word shalom? Hebrew? What does it mean? You know? Shalom? Peace? Get this now. The root word for shalom means whole. Thou wilt keep him in perfect shalom whose mind is permanently fixed on thee because he puts his whole weight on thee. Bata. The weight leaning, using him as our, as our landing spot. Peace in the New Testament. You, you remember uh, in, the, um, in the story of the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River, they made an altar before the Lord out of 12 whole stones. And then they did the same in the riverbed where they had walked through before the waters rushed back in. But the word whole is the word shalom. You see, it's only the peace comes when you have your, your focus completely and entirely on Him. That's why it says that we are to come in everything with prayer that's to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God and what? The, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall garrison about your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When you give your whole devotion to Him and you don't worry about anything because you've given it all to Him. You come to Him in prayer and you offer it to Him giving your whole devotion to Him what happens? Peace is the result. People all, everyone wants peace. When the Prince of Peace has the full devotion of all of the hearts of people upon this earth, there'll be peace on earth. Otherwise, it's going to be torn a thousand different directions. And that's why there's no real peace. 
So, you see, the, the idea of peace and all of this tied so closely together. Look, if you will, Ephesians 6.5. Ephesians 6.5. Slaves, be obedient to those that are your masters. Uh, I, yeah, chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the, what? Sincerity of your heart. All right? A generous heart with no thought of return. A full devotion of your heart as unto Christ. Even the way you work for your boss is to be to the Lord in such a way that there, there is a singleness of purpose. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians 3, 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity, there's the word again, haplus, sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Your whole devotion, your whole concentration, giving your, your employer a full day's work, no thought of return. You say, well, he better pay me. You want to know something? I hate to tell you this. If God's talking to him, God's going to tell him to pay you. But if he doesn't listen, you are still supposed to serve him that way because you do it whether he pays you or not. That's the whole principle of James 5. He says to the employer, your, your riches are going to rot and all of the rest of it. I hear the cries of the laborers weeping because you've not paid them and I'm going to get it one way or another. I'm going to take it out of your hide. Then he turns to the uh, employer, employees who are being deprived of their wages. You know what he tells them? Go on strike. Isn't that what he says? Now that's the reverse version. That's the modern translation. What God says to them is, be patient, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. He'll reward you. You mean I've got to wait till then? I hate to tell you. You're going to do it right. You've got to work with no thought of return. That's the word. Hard. It's a hard word, but it's a right word. Now, quickly, 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. I've got to finish these up or we'll be stuck. So we'll just do these real quick. 2 Corinthians 8. That in a great ordeal of affliction, speaking of the churches in Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their what? Haplus. Generosity without any thought of return. Their liberality. 2 Corinthians 9.11 You will be enriched in everything for all haplus, liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. They had given they had been a part of the sowing process in giving. Chapter 9, verse 13, same place. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the haplus of your contribution to them and to all, giving with no expectation of return. I'll go back. To Matthew chapter 6. Look at what it's saying. Matthew chapter 6. It's talking about this matter of simplicity, this matter of singularity, this matter of giving when you give with no expectation of return. Remember, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is, has that singularity of total devotion of purpose to God, if you are giving, if, if, if you are, have, have developed a lifestyle of giving with no thought of return, your whole body will be full of light. But if, on the other hand, 
your eye is bad, poneris, evil, rotten, the opposite of being generous is to be tied to a satanic concept. You know why? Because Paul said to the, to the Colossian church, beware of covetousness, which is, what? Idolatry. When you want to get, that is idolatry. When you give, that's singularity of purpose. We're going to pick up there next week and get into one other aspect of this before we leave polytheism, but it's uh, important enough that we'll take the time to do it. Time's gone now, though, so let's pray. Thank you, Father, for, for just what we're able to learn as we begin to explore the truth of your word. Oh, Father, help us to learn these lessons and to learn them well. We want, Lord, to have a singularity of purpose. We want to find our security in you and only in you. Help us to learn to do that, and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.